0: Thank the Lord for his admonition. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, would you stand with me please? Welcome back our college students and Bible college students. A number of our students are back for the, uh, the summer, and we're thankful to have them back for at least the, for these next few days. Philippians chapter 2. Well, members, if you can look around you, if we have a visitor or guest who doesn't have a Bible or perhaps doesn't have the King James Version translation, would you be kind to share your Bible with them, help them find their place? And we're just praying today that the Lord will speak to all of our hearts. How many of you feel like, how many are happy this morning? Amen. Okay, how many of you need some happiness today? Amen? You need just some joy in your heart. We're going to look at that today, how to get the joy of Jesus Christ in your heart. For time, go with me to verse 12. Verse 12, please. We're going to read from verse 12 to verse 17. We'll be back in verses 9 to 11 as we preach today. But for time, I want us to look at verses 12 to 17. Follow this morning as I read the scriptures to us. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. I like that last phrase that Paul mentioned. I joy and rejoice with you all. This morning, I just want to take a moment for us as we just worship the Lord today at this hour about the joy of Jesus Christ in every believer. And to see this morning how to keep that joy flowing, how to keep your joy cup full, and watching what the Lord will do in our hearts as we anticipate the special offering as a church will be taking up tonight. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the name of our Savior. Jesus Christ. In these verses that we'll be preaching from, it is saying that, God, you have exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. We thank you that that, that, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And, Father, today we come as a congregation to worship you and to honor you, to give glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can come to you in prayer through the name of Christ. Thank you that people are saved through the name of Jesus Christ. Christ. And today, Lord, I pray that you'd come near to every one of us in a very specific way, speak to our hearts, encourage us in the Lord, build us up in the word of your grace. We pray this morning that you'll make the, the thoughts uh, just so compelling to us about our need for Christ. And perhaps today it might be someone here is not saved, they're not 100% sure they're going to heaven. I pray that today before they leave the service they will settle that. And then Lord, we pray for every Christian today that we would experience the joy that Jesus Christ came to give to every one of us. Help us as we look at these verses of scripture that they would come alive in our hearts and speak to our minds and speak to our thoughts and help us to even be thinking how to put all of this into action today. Lord, cleanse us from all filthiness, of the flesh and superfluity of naughtiness and to receive with meekness the engrafted work which is able to save souls. Bless our Bible study today, we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> The book of Philippians is perhaps for me and maybe for many of you, one of our favorite, one of my favorite books of the Bible. I love to read. I just started reading through Philippians again. I'll spend some time this afternoon reading through it. It's one of the short letters of the Bible. If you're new to the Christian faith and, or maybe you you're just kind of got off your Bible reading schedule, a lot of times I encourage uh, new believers and people off, who, who need to get back on their Bible reading schedule, start reading through the, the smaller epistles and get back on track through that because they, they kind of get you on a track. They're short in chapters and the books are not. Not very long, and they'll help encourage you. And even though this is one of the shorter letters of the, of the Bible, it's a very powerful letter. The word epistle, if you have that, you see that in your New Testament, means a letter. Paul wrote this epistle. Paul wrote this letter from prison. He'd been in prison twice. This was his first imprisonment. As he wrote this letter, he was in Rome, uh, shackled to two Roman guards. He was writing to a favorite church of his. He helped start this church, and we'll see that in a moment here. But Paul wrote this letter to help encourage him about Things. Now, notice if you would, you'll go to chapter 1, verse 1 with me for just a moment. I want to give you a little bit of background before we get into the study. In chapter 1, verse 1, it gives us some powerful insight about who Paul was writing to. Notice this is Paul and Timotheus, that is Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in, uh, in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Would you notice Paul is writing to a local New Testament church? He's writing to a body of believers just like you and me. These These were people that were saved and they were baptized. These were people that assembled on the Lord's day for the worship of God, for the preaching of his word, for the taking up of offerings, for the glory of God. You'll notice that this was a church that he loved. Paul Paul did not intend to go to Philippi. As we get to Acts chapter 16... Paul has a a missionary team consisting of him, uh, Timothy, uh, Luke, who who kind of remains kind of anonymous in the background, and a a new member to his missions team, whose name was Silas. This was on his second missionary tour. He had a very successful missionary tour, the first time to cities like Antioch of Pisidia, and then he went to Iconium, and he went to uh, Lystra and Derby, and these different places, had a very successful campaign. He went back to his sending church, which was at the city of Antioch, one of the larger cities of the Roman Empire gave a good report to the church, spent some time there edifying and built up the church. But Paul was a church planter at heart. And God impressed on Paul's heart he, the need to going back out and starting more churches. And so God put on his heart to do that. And Paul's intention with this missions team was to go eastward. Now if Paul had his way, I think he would have made his way all the way throughout Asia because he went eastward. We read over in Acts chapter 16, he went to the area of, uh, of Galatia and Phrygia. And he went that way. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit forbidden him not. The Holy Spirit specifically closed those doors and told him in his heart he was not supposed to go eastward. He tried to make a roundabout way in the area of The Holy Spirit suffered him not again. And so sometimes we may have in our heart a great desire of doing something, but every now and then God may tell us no, and God might tell us He has a diff- something different in mind, and we just need to be sensitive to God's leading. And so Paul, Paul finally, after two or three times, the Holy Spirit saying no, he stopped in the city called Troas. Now I've got a message I'll be preaching in a few weeks about Troas and. I I think it's important for us to catch some thoughts about because that was a significant location. But there at Troas, Paul was very frustrated. How many get frustrated with life? Amen. Sometimes you just kind of make decisions and they don't turn out right or something else happens they don't turn out right and you get frustrated with yourself, you get frustrated with your family, you get frustrated with people, you know whatever it may be we get frustrated. And Paul was at this place where he realized I'm trying to push ahead in my goals and my power and it's not happening. And he stopped there at Troas and there at Troas God had Paul's undivided attention. Paul had to realize he had to stop there, he had to stop moving around, he had to stop pushing some doors, and realize he had to wait on God to show him what to do. And there at Troas, the Bible says that God gave Paul uh, a very unmistakable vision about going to an area called Macedonia. Macedonia was a big colony, and there at that colony, the chief city was the city of Philippi. Very clear in Paul's mind. Very clear in his mind. He was supposed to go there. He heard, he heard the message. It was a man of Macedonia that said, come over and help us. Just that very thought, it just gripped his mind. And that night, he told his missionary team of Timothy and Silas and Luke. He says, guys, we need to go over to area of Macedonia, and that's where God's called us, and he told them about the vision, and they said, Paul, we agree with you. We believe God was in it. Let's do it. You know, it's a good thing when we catch the vision, say, let's do it. Amen? And so they said that with Paul, and uh, so Paul gets up there, and they head towns there, and they said, well, where are we going to go? They said, let's go to Philippi. That's the chief city. It's a highly populated city. Notice in verse one, we see now the, the culmination of what Paul and his team had done. He go there; They go down there, and they get this church started. They're not really sure how they're going to start it. They didn't have a building. They didn't have prospects so they went down the riverside where women assembled uh, to pray and they got a chance to just start to preach the bible and to have a bible study and of all things there was this business woman that was there her name was lydia She was a seller of purple. She was a businesswoman from another location, and she was there. And The Bible says the Lord opened her heart. She attended to the things which Paul said, and Lydia was the very first convert there. Now, thank God when people get saved, amen? And thank God when we remember that person gets saved, when there's changes in life, and Lydia got saved, and she got baptized, and after that, she said to Paul something like this. She said, you know what? If if you judge me to be faithful, she said, you can meet in my house, and uh, God gave them their first convert, and God gave them their first location to start the church, and there in the little house of Lydia, they started the church, and not long after that, we read about a teenage girl that got saved, and then Paul ran into some trouble because this teenage girl was being taken advantage of by, by uh, uh, local people there, and she was set free from demonic control, and because those men, they were very angry, they riled up all the Jews and the people there, and the Philippians took Paul and Silas, and they publicly beat them, and they chastised them, and they ridiculed them, and they just they made a mockery of them, and then they were accused of crimes they did not do, and Paul and Silas were thrust into prison, but instead of being down in the mouth, And discouraged about that. They started singing praises to God and praying there in the prison. And there at midnight, God sent a great earthquake and uh, God shook up the prison and opened the prison doors. Through all of that, again, Paul didn't know how this was all going to unfold. Through all that, Paul had the opportunity of sharing the gospel with the Philippian jailer. He got saved. His family got saved. And it was a wonderful thing. Now we get to chapter 1, verse 1, which you notice this. Paul is writing to the saints, which are, are of Christ Jesus at Philippi. And let me say this to you this morning. Every one of us that's saved, you're a saint. Amen? Everyone that's a save, you're a saint, you became a saint automatically. You don't have to go through some process of some hierarchy determining whether or not you're a saint. God said you are set apart for His glory. And that's what the word saint means. We're set apart for the glory of God. It's a wonderful word. And Paul wanted these believers to realize they were special to God and they were loved of the Lord. And so he's writing to these saints. And as we consider that this, this one word that encompasses the people, I'm thinking about, he's thinking about Lydia, and he's thinking about that, teen, that teenager that got saved, and he's thinking about the Philippian jailer and his wife. He's thinking about some of the members down there. We'll read about two ladies there. Their names were Euodius and Syntyche. we read about the man who was the pastor, I believe, at that time of the church in Philippi. His name was Epaphroditus. I mean, he's thinking about all these people there. And Paul is writing this letter to people that are very dear to him, that he loves. And then we notice here, he's not only writing to the to the, the membership there at Philippi, this local church. But he's addressing the pastors. So he addresses them as the bishops. And the word bishop is one of several words that's used in the New Testament to describe the office of the pastor. Now, the pastor, the word, means to shepherd. But there's other words that God uses. He has the word elder, which describes the maturity of the man. And he has the word bishop, which describes the leadership of the man. It's the word episkopos, which talked about taking the oversight thereof. Or overseer, he's an overseer, or the leader. And he takes, he's to lead the church. In that. And so he's writing to now a church that's highly established and highly organized, and a church that is growing and a church that's maturing, and a church just like Heritage Baptist Church, which God is blessing and using. And he's not only writing to to the bishops, but this church is one of two that we have reference of that had deacons. Now these are these are laymen. Deacons are laymen. They're not they're not preachers per se, and they're not they're definitely not pastors. But they're basically the word deacon means a servant of the Lord. And these are men that come alongside of the pastor. They demonstrate themselves of having a special love for. God and, and serving the Lord. And, and these are men that are, are gifted and coming alongside the pastor and serving the congregation and big extension of the pastor in a growing church situation. And, and Paul was thankful for this church that while the limited time he was there, it got highly organized, established and having a pastor to lead them and deacons to serve the congregation. And the congregation was thriving. Notice verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. And we look at this book of uh, Philippians and one of the key. Words words that's users this word joy. Paul is speaking about praying for these people, and he says, every time I pray for you, I make requests with joy. I'm thankful I could pray for your spiritual health. I'm thankful I could pray for your spiritual happiness. I'm thankful I could pray for your relatives to get saved. I'm thankful I could pray that you'd be filled with the joy of Jesus Christ. When this church got off to an incredible start, it got off to a happy start, and a joyful start, and a loving Jesus start, and it was a church that was on fire for God. Hey, there's nothing better than to come to church and realize everybody loves Jesus. Amen? Nothing better than coming to church Realize the people around you are happy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I'm thankful today that as we get ready for the banquet, there's just a joy in our hearts of being able to assemble together as a church family to, to, to do the Lord's work and honor Him. And we find that this is the church He's writing to. But something happened. As Paul is writing here, we find that in the book of Philippians, he uses the the words joy and rejoicing recurrently because this was a church that somehow Satan had got into the lives of the believers and had sifted their joy from them. The word joy we find in this book is used a minimum of six times. The word rejoice, we find, is used a minimum of nine times. The Lord's joy and rejoice are concentrated most in Philippians chapter 2. Notice we find the word joy in verses 2, verses 17 and 18. In Philippians chapter 2, we find the word rejoice in verses 16, 17, 18 and 28. Here was the joy that Paul had to realize that there were things going on in this church where Satan had gotten in and had sifted their joy from them and taken their joy. And hey, I want to tell you this morning, when Jesus saved you, he saved you and put joy in your hearts. The Bible says in John fifteen thirteen. if you'll notice your notes are turned there, or John fifteen eleven. Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. May I say to you this morning, when you got saved, Jesus Christ gave you a full joy tank. Amen? Gave you a full joy tank. Listen, and today he wants you to have a full joy tank. But things happen in life. Disappointments happen in life. Disillusionments happen in life. Trials happen in life. Problems happen in life. And as we go through life and we're not very careful, the devil finds his way to puncture a hole inside your joy cup. And the joy starts coming out. And the devil wants to sift that joy out of your life. He wants to take away that happiness. I'm talking to some people this morning, perhaps in church, used to be very active in winning people to Christ. But somehow you got distracted and too busy and you've lost your joy. I'm talking to people that live in victory in Jesus Christ where you've had the joy of the Lord in your heart but maybe today you're struggling because there's a difficulty or problem or sin that has sifted your joy. I'm talking to people this morning, perhaps because of your relationships at home, relationships at church, relationship at work some or another, that you're finding challenges in those relationships and because of that you've lost your joy. That's where these believers were at. Everything that you might be experiencing was being experienced there at the church at Philippi. It was so. Paul writes to us (laughs) here, He writes to them about the importance of having their joy tank being filled and the joy of Jesus Christ abounding in their life. I want you to notice this morning three critical areas where the joy of Jesus Christ needs to be abounding in your heart and mind. Three critical areas that if we give attention to that, we'll find that our joy tank can be replenished and refilled and at full capacity once again. Number one, would you notice we see the joy of Jesus, and in verses 9 to 11, we see the joy of Jesus and our glorious life. Lord the joy of Jesus and our glorious Lord notice verses 9 to 11 if I can read that to you please wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father the summation of those verses one thing Jesus Christ is Lord summation why we're here today Jesus Christ is Lord say that with me this morning Jesus Christ is Lord say it again with me today Jesus Christ is Lord Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord the word Lord in the Bible in the New Testament is an interesting word It's the word kurios it's used 747 times in the New Testament 667 of those times it's the word Lord capitalized referring to our Lord Jesus Christ it's Fifty-four of those times, it's a smaller l. Eleven of those times, it's referred to as master, and another twelve of those times, it's used in the word sir. We find that many times in the Gospel of John, where someone is addressing Jesus, they say sir, which is a, which is basically a reverent way of calling him Lord. Now, you'll notice when the word Lord is used here, it speaks of Jesus Christ as only sovereign. It speaks of Jesus Christ as the only Son of God. It speaks of Jesus Christ as the only Savior. It speaks of Jesus Christ as only supreme, which you notice again, verse 11 to me, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this morning, if you're struggling with that, before we're done, I want you to have complete liberty and freedom to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And by the way, if we struggle with that, that means He's not Lord of our life. And so if we consider these passages this morning, notice what it says in 1 Timothy 6, and Paul speaking later on to Timothy about the Lordship of Christ, he said in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 15, which in his times... He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now notice how Paul amplifies on that very quickly this morning. As we notice the glorious lordship of Christ, we see it in his excellence. In verse 9, it says, God has given him a name which is above every name this morning let us rejoice that the name of Jesus Christ is above every other name. There are important names in this world and there are important names in business and there are important names in government and there are important names in science and there's important names in industry, but there's no other name higher than the name of our our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is above every name. His name is above all of those things. Psalms 113 verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Oh, as we, we go through this message this morning, we must be a people that praise the name of our Lord. We must be a people that sing, that say and sing as we did earlier, blessed be the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12, how excellent is the name of Christ. Paul, uh, Peter said this, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. He has a name that is excellent. He is a name that is preferred. He has a name that's prestigious. He is a name that's powerful. Listen, if you today, if you're not saved, you're not 100% sure you're saved, you're not going to get saved through the name of a church. You're not going to get saved through the name of an individual. You're not going to get saved through the name of an institution. You're not going to get saved through the name of a person other than the fact of Jesus Christ. We can only be saved through the name of Jesus Christ. He has an excellent name. He has a wonderful name. He has an undefiled name. He has a wonderful name. We would serve and honor God because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we haven't, he has a name that's excellent. But notice if you went in verses 10 to 11, he has a name that is exalted. What you notice is here, God has highly exalted him. Now our world and governments and an antichrist philosophy in this world seeks to defile the name of Christ and seeks to blaspheme the name of Christ. They want to de elevate the name of Christ. It doesn't matter what the world says or what the society says. I want to tell you today God is exalting him. God has lifted up his name. God is highly exalting him and giving him name which is above every name. Would you know this here? This exaltation of Christ says this in verse 9 that every knee, every knee in heaven, in earth, and under the earth. That means angels... That means creation, that means animals, that means planets, that means dignitaries, that means government officials, that means prime ministers, that means kings, that means presidents, that means every single person, no matter who it is, you and me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm saying this morning, Christ is Lord. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over the universe. He's Lord over the angels. He's Lord over all the demons. By the way, Jesus Christ is Lord over. Over the local New Testament church. He's to be Lord over our preaching. He's to be Lord over our singing. He's to be Lord over how we say what we do. He's to be Lord over our conduct. He's to be Lord over what we serve and what we do. By the way, tonight, when we come together as a church to take up that special love offering, He needs to be Lord in that offering. He needs to be Lord in our heart today. Perhaps I'm speaking to some brothers and sisters in Christ. You are struggling in this matter concerning your submission to the Lord. May I say to you today that that struggle will be there until you say Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ. Christ to be Lord over the church. He's, be, he's the Lord over creation. But Jesus Christ should be Lord over every home. Somehow we, we have this mindset. We need to compartmentalize things. And uh, what we do here at church is different than we do here at home. But Jesus Christ, if we're going to have fulfilling and lasting marriages and homes, he must be Lord over every home. This morning, determine that Jesus Christ will be Lord over your marriage. And determine today that Jesus Christ is Lord over every husband and every wife. And Lord over every son and every daughter and Lord over every single person and Lord over our home entertainment and our internet uh, browsing and Lord over what we do in our domestic life. Jesus Christ is to be Lord over all. Listen today, if you're fighting it, if somehow there's some pushback you're giving him, the Bible says that every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. All I'm saying to you this morning, The joy of Jesus will dissipate. The joy of Jesus will be less than what it could be if he's not glorious Lord. May we say with exaltation today, Jesus Christ is Lord. And have our joy tank filled and our joy tank brought to a level where God wants it to be a capacity. Because we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And so this morning, we see today that the joy of Jesus is found in our glorious Lord. But notice secondly, if you go to verses 12 to 16 with me. Would you notice we find the joy of Jesus in a godly life? We find the joy of Jesus in a glorious Lord, but we find the joy of Jesus in a godly life. I'm thankful in verses 12 to 15 to 16, the Bible describes to us how to live the Christian life. How to live victoriously. How to live so that God is pleased. How to live so that you realize that you're in the right motion there. Now, I use the word godly to describe our lives because it's an important word. Notice, for instance, he uses some phrases in verse 15. He talks about being blameless. He talks about being harmless. He talked about being sons of God. Notice in verse 12, he uses the word obeyed. Godly means to have a piety towards God. It means this. It means to behave and think as God. Or in many ways, I just very simply describe godly as being, being just like God. God wants us to be just like Him. He wants us to have the uh, characteristics of a life that shows that we are, we are sons of God and we come from Him. A godly life is a joyful life. They go together. If anybody's ever told you, the devil's put in your mind, being godly means you need to be sad. He told you a lie. A godly life is a happy life. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen? A godly life is a joyful life. A godly godly life is a Bible-reading life. A, a godly life is a praying life. A godly life is a church-attending life. Listen, there's joy in going to church, and there's joy in giving an offering, and there's joy in praying, and there's joy in, in, in reading our word, the Word of God because that all surrounds us uh, with Christ. Listen, a godly life is vitally connected to the Lordship of Christ. Notice in verses 9 to 11, the emphasis on Jesus Christ as Lord. Then we get to verse 12. Paul takes time to speak about his excellence, his exaltation. And then we get to verse 12 and he says, wherefore. Now the wherefore is there by wife saying, because. And so in connection to. Wherefore. And he says here that this, this godly life, he says, wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He uses a very interesting term. Work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling. The word work out, as we'll see in a moment, I want you to write this down. The word work out means to solve or to satisfy. It means to get something worthwhile done. It means to bring something to fulfillment. We, we typically use that in, in, as exercise terminology. Uh, some of you have gym memberships, and some of you are very, very disciplined about, uh, about working out. And someone who does a good workout, they'll say something like, they'll say something like this. After 45 minutes to one hour, they'll say, I had a good workout today. And what they mean is that they worked all their muscles, they got their cardiovascular system working, their heart rate is pumping well, and they just feel like they've, they've broken a sweat, and they feel like they've done well. And what it means here by workout is that we've gone to fulfillment, We we've we've pushed ourselves to the max and we've given our best. As you'll notice here, God wants us to have a godly life that that works out our salvation. Now, we don't need works to be saved, but we need to work out our salvation. So in other words, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I'm thankful today salvation is the free gift of God. Amen. And if it's a free gift of God, there's nothing you have to do to work it out. But when you get saved, God wants us to demonstrate that we have a saved life. Listen, today the greatest thing God wants you to do is give evidence of the fact that you are saved, that Jesus Christ is your Savior. And so notice some of these ways that he tells us how to live this godly life, how to work out this godly life. Notice in verse 12, there must be compliance in a godly life. He says again in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, the word obeyed is kind of an interesting word. It's the word "hopa-kuo" in the Greek. Hopa-kuo means to come under something. It means to come under the authority of another person. It literally is translated the word submission. You'll find in First Peter three one. You find Ephesians chapter five, where you read the word submission. It's the word hupakuo. It means basically you're in agreement with, you're in submission to, you're following with. A godly life is one that is obedient. Now nobody in here needs to be a rocket scientist or go to school to learn what obedience means. Obedience basically means that you do what you're supposed to do. Amen. You tell your dog, do this. You tell your child, do this. You know, when you work you work in a certain place, you have rules and regulations. You're supposed to do this. We have laws. We're supposed to obey. Listen to what the Bible says about obedience. He says, as ye have always obeyed. Paul was commending the believers at Philippi for being obedient to the Lord when he was there, but even much more so when he was gone. Listen to what the Bible says about obedience. Uh, the prophet Samuel said this to Saul. And Samuel said, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. What a great theological statement. The prophet Samuel told King Saul, you're thinking that you're pleasing God by giving sacrifices, but he says, God takes greater delight in our obedience more than our sacrifice. He said, we must obey the voice of the Lord. He says, Saul, you didn't follow through with what God told you to do, and therefore you sinned. And you tried to cover up your sin by your actions. And he says, God is not so concerned about your performance as he is about your heart. And so he says here, that it, to obey is better than the sacrifice and to hearken than the fatter rams. Jesus, on the same thought of obedience, said in John 14 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. By the way, how many love Jesus this morning? Say amen. amen. If you love me, he said, Keep my commandments. It's obedience. Charles Spurgeon said, Love is the chief jewel and the bracelet of obedience. Our obedience to God should be prompted by love. What we do at home for our spouse and we do for our parents should be prompted by love. Our coming to church is more than just, I have to come to church. It should be, I want to come to church because I love the Lord. Spurgeon went on to say this. He said, do what the Lord bids you, where he bids you, as he bids you, as long as he bids you, and do it at once. A godly life is one that's compliant. Are you obeying the Lord? Did you obey him this week? Will you obey His prompting and coming to the banquet or bringing an offering to the Lord? A godly life is a compliant life. But notice, secondly, if you go down to verse 13, what you notice, we see the character of a godly life. I said earlier that a godly life is being just like God. A character. A character describes our attitude, our disposition, our spirit, and our person. We'll say something like this, that person has great character. Or someone who perhaps lessened that, that maybe they've done something very questionable. We say, I don't know about that person's character. Character speaks about what we really are, what we really live. And there, are there are two components of character that Paul references here. Because remember, in verse 12, he speaks about working out our salvation. He says, putting it to fulfillment, putting it to, for working it out. He says, putting it to, put, don't, don't let it sit there dormant, but working out your salvation. And how do we do that? Well, he speaks about two, character, two th- characteristics that are very very important in depicting whether or not we, we are people of character. And by the way, every Christian should be a person of character. Amen? Amen. Notice the first one in verse 13 is that of our temperament. In verse 14, he says, Do all things, and you want to underline those two words, all things. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. And that deals with our attitude, our temperament. Murmurings we find were very frequent in the Old Testament, and several times as mentioned, in the but frequently in the Old Testament, we read as the children of Israel were, were in the wilderness, and they were not very happy people. They were discontented. Things were not as they imagined to be. They were quickly disillusioned. They were people that had higher expectations than they should have had. And they they, they were they had unfulfilled realizations. Murmurings means a secret to bait or secret to pleasure, not openly avowed. Basically, another word for murmurings is just complaining. Always complaining. Always saying something under our breath. Always saying, you know, I wish we didn't do it this way. And I wish we did it that way. Or if I had my way, I would do it this way. It's always complaining about something there. And Paul is talking to believers who at one time had the joy of the Lord working at capacity in their lives, and they were excited about the fact that even though the the space and quarters they met in at Lydia's home was was cramped, they realized, thank God, we have a place to meet at. And they, they this was a church that became highly organized as people got saved, and they needed pastoral leadership when Paul left, and they they needed more. And the pastor needed help to serve the congregation that was spread out through Philippi and the area of Macedonia, and so they started studying some men and nurturing men and men, mentoring men to become godly men. And some of these men met the qualification in 1 Timothy 3 of being deacons. And and so they were made as deacons to serve alongside the pastor. And they did that. But all of these people got to the place where the joy wasn't there before because there was murmuring. Paul got a report that people are complaining a lot. They complain about this and complain about that. And listen, complaining starts to happen when we stop being thankful. We stop being grateful. We stop acknowledging. We stop writing thank you notes and appreciation notes to people. Listen, when that gets into us, we get to the place where everything we see, there's something wrong. We see a mark on every wall. We see a blemish in every life. We see imperfection with everybody. We're not very careful. We can come to tonight's banquet and find something wrong and complain about it. We're not very careful. We can even find ourselves grumbling underneath our, our our voice in our seats right now about why do I need to put away the chairs and why does somebody else do that? And Paul is saying, listen, when you had the joy of the Lord, you never complained about things. You never were, had the spirit of ungratefulness or thankful. You just thanked the Lord. Hey, listen, this morning, I got out of bed today very early and I just got up and said, thank God we have church today, Amen." And I'm thankful today that in spite of all the things of rain and all that happened today, thank God the sun is out right now and we get to worship the Lord. And he said to them, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Don't, don't start fighting with other people or creating controversy there. Mark Twain said this, don't complain and talk about all your problems. 80% of the people don't care and the other 20% think you deserve them. <laughs> Will Bowen said this, complaining is like bad breath. You notice it when it comes out of somebody else's mouth but not your own. Whoa, that's a good one there. Character. And there were believers in the church at Philippi. They got the place, they're just complaining. Hey, listen this morning. Look up here. I know life is hard. I know things are difficult. I know that we, we structure our lives to do things a certain way and when things don't happen, we just get all the way. Hey, you know, I, I'm like that when, when I'm driving and I anticipate the traffic, we're good and then hit traffic. And you try to build margin to your timing to get to location in spite of traffic, but you realize you're going to be late. You can't do anything about it. And even though you're following ways, ways is going to try to take you a roundabout way to get there. You still have to go a roundabout way to get there. And you think what's going on. You know what? The Bible tells us do all things without murmurings and without disputings. We see character in our temper. But notice in verse 15, we see character in our testimony. Now here was a church that was becoming a model church throughout all of Macedonia, when Paul got to Thessalonica, when Paul got to Berea, later on Paul went to the area of Achaia, came, went to Athens, the area of Achaia. I think many times he pointed back to the testimony example of the church at Philippi. I think he talked about Lydia. I think he talked about that that teenager that got saved who was demonically oppressed. I think he talked about the miraculous conversion of that jailer. I think he talked about how Euodius and Syntyche got saved. I think he looked at that church as a model and talked about that. But Paul had to address something that was had broken his heart. Notice verse 15. Because somehow the light of their testimony started to flicker. And somehow the light of their testimony was not as vocal and not as vibrant for Jesus Christ as it once was. And he says of this church about their testimony, that you may be blameless and harmless. Now those are two words that go together. Blameless and harmless. That you're not going to be blamed or a finger pointed at you for doing something. And if it is, may it be said that it's not true. And he says, when you are blamed, remain harmless. Don't seek to retaliate and take vengeance. He says that you may be blameless and harmless. Notice the sons of God. And they had to be reminded in this verse of scripture that who they are. And aren't you reminded this morning, you and I are sons of God. Amen. He says, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as light in this world. He's reminding them that character consists of our testimony that we should shine for Jesus Christ. That we need to have a good testimony at work and a good testimony at our, among our neighbors and a good testimony at church and a good testimony of them that are without. The Bible uses the term a good report to describe who we are. And may I say this morning that it does count and it does matter where we're at and what we do, that we give a good testimony of who we are, that we're a good representation of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the church we are members of, that we have this good testimony that we be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of, notice he says, of our, of our world we live in a crooked and perverse nation. Spurgeon said this, in proportion as the church is holy, in that proportion will his testimony for Christ be powerful. And all I'm saying this morning, a godly life is found in his character. But notice something else here, we're not done yet. Paul speaks about about this godly life. He speaks about the character of a godly life. He speaks about the compliance or obedience of a godly life. But notice we ask this question, we look at verse 13 how can I get this done? How is it possible? How is it possible for me to live a godly life? How is it possible to do all things without complaining? How is it possible to be blameless and harmless? And listen, as we notice that God doesn't leave you and I hanging out there in our power. And God doesn't leave you and I out there thinking it's all on us, even though some of it is on us. Notice in verse 13, he gives us a wonderful word of encouragement. He says, for it is God which worketh in you. How many glad God is working in you today, man? It is God which worketh in you. He compensates for our inadequacies, He compensates for our weaknesses, He compensates for our, our repeated mistakes, He compensates for our sins we make. He says God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure I want to help you this morning. many of you have gotten saved in the last few weeks in the last few days in the last couple the last several months may I remind you as you're struggling to live the Christian life, it's God which worketh in you. you see this morning the moment you got saved. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, His blessed Holy Spirit came and indwelt you at that moment. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and me. Our bodies are called the temple of God. And as that temple the Holy Spirit resides in us. He's our down payment or the earnest of our inheritance until we get to glory. He lives inside of us. And so we have two things that God uses to help you and I have that power because we see here this great capability. It's the capability that we have in God. We are not capable of ourselves, but it's the capability of God working in us. Now watch what happens. The Holy Spirit working in you who is our teacher who is our comforter who wants the fruit of the Spirit to be born in our life? Who wants us to walk in that Spirit? That accompanied with God's Word. God takes His Word. And through the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it's God which worketh in you. You see, this morning, even right now, as, as the Word of God is being preached, it's God which is working in you. If you feel a sense of God pricking your heart, or you feel a sense of just uh, a little bit of just you know, conviction this morning because you feel like, you i got to do something for God. And maybe I need to stop my complaining. And maybe I need to be more thankful. And maybe, maybe I need to be more content. Him. It's God which worketh in you. And notice verse 13. God doesn't work in us to do something to throw, us, to throw us upside down. He works in us to do of his will and to do of his good pleasure. Everything that the word of God is doing with the Holy Spirit is to move you and I in a direction so that we are honoring to God and pleasing to him and God, God can get his will done through your life and mine. Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope that's your prayer this morning, that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But how's that going to get done? not going to get done in my power. It's not going to get done in your power. It must be the power of God working through us. And we can thank God today that we are all a work in progress because it's God which works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We must yield ourselves to God so that that capability is all of the Lord working in your life and mine. Let God arise in your hearts and your desire. Let God work in you to do his will. Surrender your will into his will. Let Let God work in your life. You can be godly, but only when God has the liberty to work in you. And so we see a God Life, there's the capability of a godly life. And we see the character of a godly life. We see the compliance of a godly life. But notice the capacity of a godly life. Notice again some of the words we've looked at. In verse 12, obeyed. In verse 13, uh, he says, it's God which works in us. In verse 14, we're to do all things without murmuring or complaining and disputing. In verse 15, we're to be blameless and harmless. We're to depict that we're sons of God. We're to let our light shine brightly in a very crooked and perverse nation. And notice all of those things we realize that now, how do you get that all done? Go back to verse 12. It goes back to you and me. This is how we work out our salvation. The word work out means to bring to its fullest capacity. To bring to fulfillment. To bring to accomplishment. To bring to achievement. Work out your own salvation. Listen, we're not to be busybodies worrying about what somebody else is doing or not doing. We're to be focused on our salvation. Amen? Work about me. I'm I'm responsible for me. You're responsible for you. And we're to work out our own salvation. The Bible says with fear and with trembling. Now, the word workout means that we're not to sit there like a lump on a log. We're not to sit there to watch the world go by. But it means all of us can need God, God saying this to help us realize we need to get busy. Now watch what happened to this church at, at this church at, at Philippi. Here were once people that were serving God and honoring the Lord. They had the joy of Christ in their life. They were there at those things. But they got busy. And we, God knows we all get busy. They got busy. They had family obligations. Trials came. All these things came up. And they, they, they just kind of had to back off on some things a little bit. And they started to back off a little bit more. And they backed off a little bit more. And instead of being participants, they became spectators. And they were miserable spectators. But they didn't realize that's why they were miserable. They were miserable watching other people uh, get things done. And they were miserable because other people were making mistakes. And they were miserable because it did not happen the way that they used to see it. And they got, they got discontented about things. And, and they were just all upset. And Paul said, hey, look, you've got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling we need to realize God has saved us to serve God has saved us to glorify him God has saved us to magnify him through our life and so when we serve God there's there's a multitude number of ways we can serve God and honor him and so he tells us here work out your own salvation notice with fear and with trembling now how do you do that? well you want to write this in the the, the margin of your bible How, how do you do that? he says well working out means let's get things done let's get something done for God that's what he means We need to be fruitful in our work. We need to be fervent in our work. We need to finish our work. We need to get things done. I'm just saying this morning, we see here Paul encouraging these believers. If you want to get your joy back, you want the joy of Jesus overflowing your life, you've got to see him as your glorious Lord. You've got to bow before him and adore him as your glorious Lord. You've got to get back to living a godly life. But notice as we close this morning, he says one more thing. He tells us we can find the joy of Jesus through our glorious Lord. We can find the joy of Jesus in a godly life, but as we close this morning, notice we find the joy of Jesus in our gainful labors. Now here's what I want to tell you this morning because the emphasis is work out our salvation. There's two critical things as we close that are part of the labors for God, that honor him, that please him, and help us to get things done. The word gainful has the idea of making advances and being profitable. Labor has the idea of putting effort into what we do. Gainful labor means as we put effort into what we do, it's profitable. It's gainful. It's advantageous. It's a blessing. And so notice as we close, close this morning, how do you get the joy of Jesus by serving the Lord? Well, let me give you two things and we're done. Notice verse 16. Gainful labor number one. Gainful labor number one. There's the performance of the gospel. Notice verse 16 honing forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What's Paul talking about there? As you read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, Paul makes a point, each chapter, of emphasizing the witness of, of the Christian life holding forth the word of life you and i are walking bibles to a society that needs jesus christ you and i are light in darkness jesus said ye are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill we are a candlestick that's lit in darkness and as light and as salt God wants us to hold forth the word of life. We're to proclaim and get out the gospel. It means to get out there and give, get all the exposure we can to the gospel so people can hear and people can know. It means getting the gospel to every creature. Let me tell you a neat story that just, that's, this is one of many stories, and there's several in this room. So for our Easter. Our Easter outreach, our church did a fantastic job. By the way, thank you for everyone, who, even if you just gave one invitation out. Our church did a fantastic job of just getting out a lot of the Easter invitations and so forth there. We saturated our area very, very well and, and maybe several times over. We thank the Lord for that. And there's a home here in San Leandro that received an invitation and uh, they had a relative that was visiting. The relative lives in Modesto. Now Modesto's probably, depending on traffic, can be anywhere from an hour, ten minutes, to an hour and a half away to get here. And this relative gave, this, uh, the, the, this person at this home in San Leandro, gave it to the relative that lives in Modesto. This person gave their testimony the other night to us, told us how they got saved. But it's amazing, they got that, that invitation, decided to come out here on that Easter Sunday. They came there, and now since Easter Sunday, they've been here consecutively every Sunday since then, coming all the way down from Modesto, actually almost twice a week, coming down here to our services, just like some of our folks that live up in the Petaluma area, coming all the way down, driving more than an hour to get to church. And they come down here because of one reason. Someone took time to get the Word of God to them. And so you never know, as we hold forth the Word of Life, how God's going to touch someone's life or reach someone. I'm thinking of some good friends in in the church this morning. I'm thinking about it just a few years ago. As I knocked on their door, I've knocked on their door many times. But that day, the dear precious wife came to the door and looked at me, and they were in a hurry to get to the doctor's. But they took a moment, and as I got to explain the gospel to them, that dear precious lady came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior. The week after that, her dear precious mother came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. A few months after, almost a year after that, her husband, who's also here today, came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And then her brother, his, their, her brother got saved. And it's just been an ongoing thing of families getting, um, family members getting saved. All because we took time to hold forth the word of life. And so Paul is saying here, if our gainful labors, listen, you never go wrong in giving a tract to somebody. You never go wrong. Hey, by the way, when, you go, when we do door-to-door knocking, you never knock on the wrong door. And when you give a gospel track, you never give a gospel track to the wrong person. And when even tragedy strikes, there's never the wrong person. Listen, if God put you and I for there for such a time as this, to help people know about Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so this morning, if you want the joy of Jesus, go and win some souls. Amen? They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth and reapeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheets with him. It's a joyful thing, a wonderful thing when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So we see this morning one of our gainful labors that can give us back our joy is the performance of the gospel. Go to chapter 4 and we're done. The last thing I want to see is there's the performance of the gospel, but there's the practice of giving. By nature, we're selfish. By nature, we're more we get more excited about accumulation than we do about distribution. In chapter 4, which you notice very quickly, we just have to skip through this real quickly, but notice in verses 12 to 15, Paul speaks about the practice of giving. Here's what's going on. I'll give you a summation. When Paul left Philippi, he went to the cities of Thessalonica, and Berea, which were also in Macedonia. Then he ventured a little bit further to an area called Athens, was there for a short period of time. And then he got down to an area called Corinth, which is in the area of Achaea. And through all that, the believers at Philippi, they, they were maturing and growing very quickly in the Lord. And the believers at Philippi took ownership in Paul's ministry. They said this: Paul started the church, Paul was our missionary. Paul is our pastor. Paul is our missionary. We don't know how he's doing. We know one thing. He's preaching the gospel full-time in these other cities. And they had not developed faith-promised missions as we do it right now in terms of how to support missionaries. And so this church at Philippi, they got a love and a burden for the Apostle Paul. And beyond the tithing that they took up for their own church needs, the church took up missionary offerings to help their missionary, who happened to be the Apostle Paul. Now notice how Paul describes this very quickly. In verse 14, he says, You have well done, in that you did communicate with my affliction. Now, the word communicate, as I shared on Sunday night, the word communicate, last Sunday night, the word communicate is another word, forgiving. It's another word of participating in the offerings. It means to fellowship together in the offering. He, he told these church, this church of Philippi, You did well in giving to my affliction. He says, I was out of money, I needed to pay my expenses and you did well in sending an offering to me. He says, you did well. Verse 15, he commends them as the only church that communicated with him in giving, receiving. Look at it. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, you read that in Acts chapter 16, and then he, he in chapter 16, he leaves Philippi, and then he goes to these other cities, and then in chapter 17, he leaves Macedonia, he goes to a new area, he says this, now ye Philippians know also in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with Me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Now, what's he doing there? He's commending this church for taking care of him. He's commending this church for being faithful to their own offerings. He's commending this church for thinking about him. They went beyond the call of duty. They thought about their missionary and they said, "You know what? We got to keep on just taking offerings to help the Apostle Paul because we don't know really what's going on other than what the letters he tells us." And he says, "No other church communicated with him. now." Thessalonica had not matured to thinking like the church of Philippi, and Berea had not matured like the church at Philippi, and definitely Athens did not have. They did not have the resources or means, and even the churches on his first missionary tour, the churches there on Cyprus and Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and Derbe and Lystra, those were were all good churches, but none of them had the means or the capability of communicating with Paul. In fact, his sending church at Antioch, they weren't even thinking about Paul. It didn't mean that they were disregarding him. They just thought that maybe the other churches were taking care of him. And he says, you know what? I want to thank you at Philippi that you communicated with me. You took care of me. No other church did." but he says, I want to commend you before God for having done that. And then verse 16, notice what he says here. He says, "When I was in Thessalonica, that was in his second stop. You sent once and again to my necessity." He talks about that in the book of First Thessalonians. Listen, they gave once, and they gave more than once. They gave more repeatedly. And he said, "What he's saying here: this church at Philippi was a church that was involved in giving. They were involved in the practice of giving." Tonight, can I teach you something this morning? There's a joy in giving to Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a joy in participating in the offerings. I've been with this church for 20 years, and I will tell you this morning, if you just look across the landscape of what God's done here, there's been a joy in our, in our, in our founding members. There's been a joy in our faithful members in giving to the various offerings of God. We're not trying to do that to deplete you, your Savior, to take away from you what you need to do for retirement, things like that. We want you to do as you're compelled by the Lord. But there's something about giving that helps me to understand there's a bigger, there's a bigger need than me, and there's a bigger picture besides me. And tonight we get to come with a joyful heart to give to the Lord. Listen to Luke 6, Give and it shall be given unto you. Listen, we want God to bless us, but before God can bless us, we need to step out and be obedient to God. That's what Jesus said. Give, and it shall be given unto you. And he goes on by saying this. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For the same measure that ye meet with, it shall be measured to you again. Someone said this. We are most like God when we are giving. And so this morning, as we look at verses 17 and 18, Paul goes on by saying something else because this is important about giving and we're done. He said, not that I desire a gift. Can I say something this morning? And don't take this the wrong way. But God doesn't even need you and I to give our offering. He doesn't need our money. Why are we doing it? Because of the blessing. Because notice what Paul says here. Not that I desire a gift. He says, I I didn't do this to you. Take money from you. But he says, "I desire fruit that may abound to your account." And one of the practice of giving is, we're sending ahead. We're sending ahead for the future fruit that abounds our account that takes us to 1st Corinthians chapter 3 when at the judgment seat of Christ the works that we've done for Christ as saved individuals will be tested it will go through the fire and he says here I desire fruit that it may abound your account he's saying your extra giving your extra participation is fruit that you're laying aside hey listen you know this if you have a savings account it never hurts to have more savings it never hurts to have a little bit more than there. And you know what Paul's saying there? He says, you've been given. You've been adding fruit to your account. And then notice verse, verse 18. He says, I have all in the bound. I'm full. I have more than what I need. He, he learned to be content. He says, I can live in poverty and I can live with money. He says, either way. He says, I, learned to, I, I can be content. He says, I'm full. He said, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing God. Hey, here's how God looks at our offerings. God looks at our offerings as something that's very fragrant in his in His nostrils. It's just like Mary of Bethany when they were sitting at the table and Jesus was there and she just abruptly came into the meeting after everyone was served dinner. She broke an alabaster box and she poured the ointment, a very expensive amount of ointment. It was, it was valued, equivalent to one year's wages. She poured the ointment. And what does the Bible say in John chapter 12 about the odor of the ointment? the odor filled the room. And Paul's saying something very similar. He says, you know what? When we give to the Lord our gainful labors, it's a sweet-smelling odor to God. Now, I don't know about you, but we need to pass the smell test, amen? We need God to be honored and acknowledged in what we give to Him for His glory. How's your joy cup this morning? How's your joy tank? It's got little leaks in it. Does the devil come along and sift at your joy? I would tell you this morning, the joy of Jesus comes when Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Maybe you're struggling this morning in an area of your life. Let him have lordship in your life. Let him have lordship. Let him have control. Secondly, the joy of Jesus is found in a godly life. It's found in our character, it's found in our capacity. It's strengthened by his capability. And the joy of Jesus is found when we're practicing gainful labors, spreading the gospel, telling people about the Lord, introducing them to Christ. And it's found in the practice of giving. When we find ourselves realizing that, yes, we're doing what we should be, but we want to do more. And tonight, when we take up that giving by faith offering as a church, I pray that this evening you just let the Lord have his way to do something incredible in your heart. Two years ago, I said this to the church. We called that offering a UFO, an unforgettable faith opportunity. And once again, we, we want you to step out and take advantage of an unforgettable faith opportunity. As Dr. Oulette said, the offering does more for you in terms of building your character and your faith in God and your dependence upon Christ today. And then may I say this this morning, we're talking about what we can do May I tell you about somebody who did something very special for you? For all that to happen, Jesus Christ came to earth to die for your sins and mine. He died for your sins. He took your place and my place on the cross so that you can have the gift of eternal life. If this morning you're not 100% sure you're saved, it would be a tragedy to leave this church this morning presumptuously thinking that you're saved. Make sure this morning that you're saved. And I'm going to help you with that. Number one, you need to understand that you have sin. Your sin has a consequence. God has to punish your sin. But God punished his son, Jesus Christ, for your sins and mine. And when he did that, he, Jesus Christ satisfied all of God's demands for sins once and for all. Now, by faith, we can accept what Christ did. And by faith, accept Jesus Christ into our heart to save us and wash away our sins. Right where you're seated, just as we have every week. You can accept Jesus Christ as your savior. You can call upon him to make sure that you're going to be saved and going to heaven. And we want to urge you this morning before you leave that you trust Christ today to be saved. It's not baptism. It's not church membership saves you. It's not all those other things. It's first and foremost, a starting point is making sure that you've taken by faith Jesus Christ as your savior.